of our Jesus, man. He has got it all together, and he is the reason that we're here to celebrate. Thank you for being here today. I'm so grateful for the creative team and the worship team and the production team with all the work that they've done to, um, man, really just help us raise the bar for Easter and do something with excellence. And so it's just so much fun to to watch all these things come together. But we're here to celebrate Jesus Christ. We're here to celebrate the resurrection. We have a risen Savior who we get to celebrate and recognize today, and it's the reason that we've gathered together. So thank you, thank you, thank you for, for being a part of today's service. Thank you for joining us online. Uh, today, my goal is to try to communicate to our heads and to our hearts. Uh, it's a big responsibility because in my communication power, I can't speak to your heart The Holy Spirit can, but I want to communicate to our heads and our hearts together because ultimately what God has in store for us today is is information that we can learn, but there's a purpose for this information about who Jesus is that can have a radical change in your life. Everyone that would come in contact with Jesus Christ would leave a changed person. He brings new life, and we believe that God's word is true and that it has power to change your life. We believe that God is real, his word is true, and this has the power to radically transform and change your life. We come together today, and most of us in the room, I would say, watching online, collectively believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But I would recognize also that that doesn't mean that everyone here does recognize that. We know that holidays are times that we join our family to go to church, and I'm glad you chose to either watch here or, or be a part of this service today because you know, it, it has the opportunity for you just to examine the claims of Christ, and, and you're really who I'm hoping that, that I can maybe talk to your head and heart with as well because, man, we're used to doing this together as a church body, but let me just ask you a question. If all this stuff is real... And Jesus, in fact, was God's son. And Jesus, in fact, died on a cross. And Jesus, in fact, raised uh, his, was resurrected back to life again, proving that he was God. If all that stuff is true, then he's worthy to follow. And if it's not true, then move on and try to find happiness and peace and joy and comfort and other things in life because this is going to leave you empty if it's not true. Now, the reality is, is that there is one of three ways, and maybe you've heard messages preached on this before, and this isn't the point of my message, but I want to build the argument that Jesus is either who he says he was and says that he is, that he was God's only son, and that he was the Messiah of the world. He was the one sent to forgive us of our sins, to restore a right relationship with God, and to give all those that would be believers a title of being called a child of God, which means that we get to live eternally with God in heaven. And so Jesus is either that, that's who he, who he, he is, who he says he is. And so he's either God or he's a liar. Now the, the world will tell you that Jesus existed. Historians all uh, throughout the, the annals of time have all said Jesus was a real person. And most likely you would also believe that Jesus was a real person. No doubt he walked this earth. And most people would would boil him down to either being God or just a good teacher. But we understand that if he was just a good teacher and he was lying to us the whole time, it would invalidate his fact and his title of being called a good teacher, wouldn't it? If he was a liar, there's nothing good in him. Why would he be teaching lies to people in hopes that they would surrender their lives and and follow him and leave behind their businesses like Matthew did or like the fishermen did, the disciples If Jesus was a liar, then he's not worthy of following. 
But in addition to that, if Jesus was a liar and be willing to go to the grave because of something that he created and fabricated, that would make him a lunatic, a nut job. It would make him sociopathic. I mean, who would do that? So he's either God, the Father, or he's a liar, or he's a mad person that was willing to go to the grave for something that he absolutely knew wasn't true. So today, I just need you to examine that with me. If, in fact, he rose from the dead, well, then we have some infallible proofs. Because even a good person can die for a good cause. But a good person can't resurrect in their own power and their own authority. Jesus not only was resurrected, but he predicted his resurrection. If you're with us at Good Friday, I told you that his life was not taken from him. He freely gave it. He understood what his purpose was. And although it was really, really hard for him to do in his physical self, he understood the purpose in which he came was to give his life so that he would be able to forgive us of our sins. Now, Sunday, uh, I mean, last Sunday, I talked about what our sin problem was. And, and if you haven't watched that service or you missed it, and, and, and some of this is not making sense, you may need to go back and piece last Sunday's talk into this to kind of have a better understanding. But the bottom line with our sin problem is this, and I'll summarize it in this way, is that God is holy and sin is not. And so when you and I have sin in our life, which, by the way, God says that we all sin, we all have screwed up. I know that I'm the chief of that kind of person. I've messed up. And so that sin, however, separates me from God. God is holy, therefore, and I am not. And how do I fix that? There's nothing I can do to say sorry enough. There's not enough good works I can do. There's not enough money I can give to a church. And there's not enough orphanages I can start in the world in order to make God happy with me enough to restore the sin problem. I have to be forgiven of that sin. And the only way to be forgiven of sin is through the blood shed by Jesus Christ. This is what God's word says. The authority of God's words teaches us that it's by his sacrifice that we can have forgiveness of sins. But first, we must surrender our life to him and take his life for ours. In this grand, beautiful exchange, we can call him Father and we confess our sins. He'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is simple as that. And I realize I'm talking to your head when I talk about that. Ultimately, today, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. But in order to get us there, I want us to look at a list of proofs, if you will, infallible proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if I can get you to understand that Jesus did, in fact, resurrect from the dead, that's, plausible under, that's a plausible reason for you to go, wait a minute, I need to pay more attention to this story. It's not just a story in a Bible, but this is actually... What if this is actually the real living God? And so the first thing I want to talk to you about is his death. The first infallible proof is I got to prove that he died. Because if he didn't die, then he didn't resurrect. And so one of the arguments that, that people have conjected over the years is that Jesus didn't really die, that he just passed out on the cross or his blood pressure dropped to such a degree they weren't able to, to tell if he was actually alive. But let me tell you clearly that there has been no evidence in the history of this world, that anyone has ever been able to survive a full Roman crucifixion. It is impossible to survive that. It was designed as a punishment to be a final and effective punishment for death. Jesus suffered on a cross. As a matter of fact, it was, it was customary to either have your legs broken or to have your side pierced. 
so that you couldn't breathe anymore and that you would definitely die. This is what, in fact, happened to Jesus, that he'd already died. They didn't have to break his legs, which, by the way, fulfilled prophecy. But they shoved a spear into his side, and blood and water flowed out, indicating physiologically, medically, that he, in fact, had died. The political leaders and the centurion all around there all recognized that he was uh, he was literally and totally and completely dead. For some reason, I had the Wizard of Oz little song playing in there for some reason in my head. Completely dead, you know, that kind of song. But he was completely and totally dead when he was taken off of the cross. I love the fact that the world religions that exist in the world, you can go to their graves because they're still dead. But our Savior his grave is a tourist attraction that people can go to and realize it's an empty tomb. Glory to God for his resurrection. But the second thing, not just the fact that he really died, but I want you to talk, I want to talk about to your mind here, think about this for a second, the precautions that the Roman government and the religious leaders of the time took in order to make sure that his body didn't disappear. And so they guarded the tomb with at least uh, about up to, what scholars believe, up to about 10 different soldiers would have guarded the body of Jesus. In my mind's eye, because of all the photographs, the Polaroid pictures I've seen of this moment, there's only two, but they must have been off the camera, but there's no Polaroid. Come on, people. Just at least go with my stupid humor. It's all I've got, you know, but there was about 10 people potentially that guarded this tomb. And they put a stone in front of the opening, which weighed about 3,000 pounds. It wasn't going to be moved by one individual. They sealed it with a Roman seal. And if you were to mess with that seal, it would be punishable by death. And if the disciples really had wanted to steal the body, it would have been unimaginable to think that these guys would have been capable of doing such a thing. Think about it. If, in fact, there were 10 soldiers, good grief, if there's just five soldiers there, trained palace guards in, in all combat attire and all of their effects there to be able to hurt someone who would try to, to stop. And you're going to send a few fishermen who were not trained in fighting whatsoever, who did not have any armor whatsoever, and you're going to send them to go take these guys on and steal the body? Absolutely not. And think about this, too. The disciples, last we read about them, they were running scared. They were hiding. They were, they were self-preserving themselves. They didn't want to stick their neck out. They didn't want to be seen. It doesn't make sense that they would go steal the body, but this is what the, the government was suspicious of. Listen to how it all plays out and how strategic and intentional Pilate's plans were and the Pharisees' plans to protect Jesus' body. They were not going to let this body disappear. The next day on the Sabbath... The leading priests and Pharisees went to go see Pilate, who was the, the government leader. And they told Pilate, they said, Sir, listen, when we, re we remember that that deceiver, Jesus, that deceiver, we remember when that liar was here, he said that he was going, uh, he, that after three days, he was going to rise from the dead. And so, listen, we request that you would just, just seal the tomb up for three days. We need to make sure that there is absolutely no way possible for this guy to get out. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body. And then, man, they'll tell everyone that he was raised from the dead. And if this happens, we're going to be worse off than we were at first. You see what they were trying to do? They understood because Jesus said, if you, crucify, if you kill me, I'm going to rise again. And there, there's all this talk about this resurrection. And they're like, we are not letting this happen on our watch. There was a concerted political and military or police effort, so to speak, to make sure that this did not happen. 
They were not going to let this body slip out of their sight. They will do whatever it takes to keep it. And Pilate said, you're absolutely right. Take guards and secure it the best you can. You think that was a direct order to make sure that this was lock, stock and barrel protected? So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. It was impossible to get that body out. But since when <laughs> has impossible ever stopped our God? We just sang about that together. It was early Sunday morning. We know how the story goes. We know how the story finishes. As the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was this great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and then sat on it. Gosh, I love that part. His face shone like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards, these bold, strong military guys that they were, they shook with fear when they saw the angel, and they fell into a dead faint. They passed out. So awesome. Here they are encountering an angel of the Lord. You know, it wasn't like a Casper, the friendly ghost. Listen, God's angels are terrifying, so I get it. But it's just cool to me that here they are. Just I mean, all these men are just passed out on the ground. The angel spoke to the women. He says, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Just as he said, what happened? So come inside and see where the body was lying. He invites them in to examine the empty tomb. The women were absolutely convinced that the body was gone. They have an angel of the Lord that is telling them what took place. They were thrilled. In verse 7, and now go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to see him there. And don't forget everything I told you. Like, I got it, I got it. We're going to see him in Galilee. Yes, yes, yes. So verse 8, the women ran quickly from the tomb, and they were frightened, but they were also filled with joy. They couldn't quite process everything. They had no context for this. This was blowing their minds, but they have this message from an angel that Jesus is alive, and they're running back to tell the other disciples. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message, and as they went, they ran into Jesus. Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, and they, they grasped onto his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, guys, don't be afraid. It's me. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they're going to see me there. That's the part of the story that we're here to celebrate today. It was a resurrection. But look at the details that the, that the Romans did, the precautions that they were taking to try to cover this up, because now the body's gone, that they were there to protect Verse 11 says, as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. Not all of them. Everyone was a little nervous, I would imagine, because you can die. You can be killed for letting these people escape, letting this body disappear, rather. So as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city, and they told the priest what had happened. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, so, yeah, we were over there. And what had happened was, <laughs> we, we, uh, there was this big angel, and it scared us so much that we passed out, and we don't remember a whole lot more after that except the body's gone when we woke up. Can you imagine delivering that news to the military leadership of the day and the religious leaders of the day, realizing you could be executed for this? Do you think that's why only some of the guards went to go tell the story? The other ones were hiding in fear of their life. A meeting of the elders was called immediately after that. Do you think so? 
rut row. And they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They said, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to pay these guys off. They told the soldiers, well, here's what you must say. You must say that Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping. I know you weren't supposed to be sleeping, but we're going to say that you were sleeping. Now, who, that's just ridiculous. Soldiers are going to take turns sleeping if they need to sleep, but there was no one who was going to be, well, no, no circumstance imaginable where everyone would be asleep. They're saying while we were sleeping, they stole the body. That's what we're going to say. And by the way, if the governor hears about this, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get in trouble or executed is what he's saying. And so the guards didn't have any really other choice. They took the money, they took the bribe, and they said what they were told to say. And their story spread widely among the Jews. And it is still told today. What a cover-up. Not even a plausible story. But that's what happens when Jesus shows up, when God shows up in a miraculous way and does something that baffles the mind of humans in this resurrection power no one understood And they had no time to come up with a story. And the story they came up was pathetically weak. And I love it. Because it just shows they were rocked by this just as much as the rest of the world is rocked by his resurrection. So there's an empty tomb. Number three, the proof of the resurrection is now we have an empty tomb. It wasn't supposed to happen. We're supposed to guard it and protect it. But now it's empty. And even the most vehement of opponents to the gospel would confess that the tomb was empty. Ancient historians, people that weren't even religious people that wouldn't even consider themselves, uh, they're atheists, not even believers would have said that the tomb was empty. It was an undeniable fact. Pilate couldn't deny that the tomb was empty. Everyone understood that the tomb was empty. Josephus would write about it in the Antiquities of the Jews, a non-believer who would write about the historical events and the truth of the matter that Jesus' body was gone. More contemporary people like Lee Strobel and and Frank Morrison and Josh McDowell, all professed atheists who sought out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, began to write books and to study and to to make great headway to try to just upset this storyline. They actually led themselves to faith in Christ because they examined the claims and found it to be an undeniable fact, and they became believers in Jesus Christ. You see, they sought to understand it in their head and to debunk it. And once they did understand the truth of his resurrection, they were able to meet Jesus in their heart. That's what I want for you today as well. All at one time, these people were professed atheists, and now they're believers in Christ. How beautiful. Number four, another uh, infallible proof, in my opinion, is that there are post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Write that down. People saw Jesus resurrected. And not just the disciples, which you kind of expect them to tell the story that way. But but Luke would tell us in Acts Acts chapter 1 that that Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days. He didn't just hang around for a short period of time, blink, and he was gone. There was 40 days. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. And Paul was saying, you don't have to take my word that he's resurrected. Just go ask one of the 500 people that saw him. Many of them are still alive today. Go talk to them. It is undeniable that everyone saw this Jesus walking around, and it was creating an incredible stir within the religious community. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and Pilate were shaking in their boots, trying to figure out what in the world happened. And so you can imagine what they did. They set out the biggest manhunt in the history probably of the world to search for a dead body because they had to prove it. 
All they could imagine is the disciples somehow took the body. They don't know, and they can't explain how the, the soldiers didn't see it or didn't interfere with it. But that body must be somewhere around because either he resurrected or he's still around. We're going to find the body. And so they began this search. And he mobilized, you can imagine, all the people at his disposal to be able to turn over every rock, look at every crevice, look at every house, look at any fresh dirt that was turned over, any new grave, any old grave. If it looked like it had been disturbed, the bodies were to be exhumed and examined to determine whether that was Jesus or not. Can you imagine the stockpile of bodies being brought in and examined by soldiers all around saying, is this him, is this him, is this him, is this him? No one matches the description of Jesus Christ that they would discover. No one with the nail prints in his hands. No one with the nail prints in his feet. No one with the cat of nine tails ripping his flesh off his back or the impression of a crown of thorns upon his neck. There was an, a piercing in his side. There would be no body that they could discover. Rome was left scratching their heads. But it isn't just religious accounting that we or accounts that we have. There are nine historical accounts validating the resurrection that the body was never found both on the secular side and the religious side. Folks, these are smoking guns of of information that we have proving that what we are following as a believer is rock-solid factual information. I know the Christian faith, I know the Christian religion, so to speak, requires faith to follow, but I'm telling you, it's the easiest leap to make because we're building our life upon fact. It's not just some made-up thing that we're hoping about. This is bona fide truth. But I think perhaps one of the most significant proofs that I can give you today, and I want to kind of camp out here just for a second, is number six. Write this down. The dramatic change that we see in the disciples. The dramatic change that we see in disciples. Remember again, right before Jesus was crucified, we get to see in Scripture that these guys are running for their lives. They are actually hiding. They're laying low, and you would too. Because Pilate was, and the religious leaders were just, if they were effective and successful at wiping out the religious leader, Jesus. And they tormented him and they crucified him in a heinous way publicly because they wanted to squash this religious movement. And do you think there's any disciple that was thinking, I'm going to take over now that Jesus is, good, is gone? I'm gonna... No, they were freaked out. They didn't want, who would want to sign up to this? Because you know that this movement now has momentum. This movement to eradicate Christianity has incredible momentum. They have the support of the entire community who shouted, crucify him. Do you think it's going to be difficult to crucify Peter at this point or to crucify John or James or any of the other disciples? These guys are running for their life and they are hiding and they're doing all they can to get out of visibility of those people. The disciples knew that they'd be next and so they hid together. And they shared in their grief and their loss for Jesus, but they also were self-preserving themselves. They must have been so afraid. And I'm not trying to be hard on them because I would do the same thing, and so would you. It was a terrible time in human history. Can you imagine what they watched and how hard it was to know that this innocent man was just treated in such a way? But pay close attention to this. These men, as we can see that they turned into cowards, And I'll call them that to make the specific or the starch contrast to where they become. I I, I say loosely the word cowards because they were afraid like you and I would be afraid. But something happens to these men. Something that could only be explained by the fact that they saw something that absolutely convinced them. 
These men went from being afraid to completely courageous. These men went from being totally afraid, from hiding in their, in their basement, so to speak, uh, and then now they're out in public they're, and they're preaching the gospel. As a matter of fact, when you look at the book of Acts, you'll see Peter, he preaches a message to the people who killed Jesus and fingers it out and says, you're the one that crucified Jesus and the one that you did and you did and you did. The one that you, you, know, that you, you put into the grave has resurrected in your face. I mean, he's shouting out, how in the world did a guy who denied Jesus three times now is so bold to be able to, to preach a gospel and not care that he could be killed for it? The disciples turned out to be people who were willing to, to, be, to suffer for Christ, to be beaten for Christ. Some were beheaded for Christ. Some were sawed in half for Christ. Some were stoned to death. And some were crucified, even crucified upside down. So the $50,000 question is, how do people go from there to there? And the answer is simple. They saw something. They saw something that was so big that they're willing to say, my life doesn't matter anymore. They saw the resurrected Christ. They knew that Jesus was not a lie. He knew the, they knew the resurrection of Jesus had happened. And the biggest proof of someone who encounters the resurrected Christ is that there's life change. And that's still true for us today. When you and I encounter the resurrected Christ, that he resurrects us, there's life change. We surrender our heart to him, and he gives his life to us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us power. Power over sin, power over our weaknesses, power to be able to accomplish his purposes in this world, power that we don't even begin to understand how much is at our disposal because Christ says that we would be able to do even greater things than him. Wow, what kind of power does he give us? When you experience Jesus Christ face to face, it always results in life change. So here's my final proof. My final proof is this. He lives in my heart. And you probably can say the same thing about that yourself. He lives in my heart. He sure changed the disciples' tune, didn't he? And he certainly changed my tune as well. I was saved at a young age. I was 13 when I gave my heart to God. But Unfortunately, I had grown up in a pretty tough situation and some hard things had happened and I'd already made some really bad choices in my life as a 13-year-old. I understood what it meant to be forgiven of sin because unfortunately I had a list of them at that point in my life. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I really got serious about who God was in my life. And I can look back at who I was before and my way of thinking and I can say, wow, I'm so different. But even from the time that I met Christ, when I surrendered my life to him, to now here I am, 52 years old, I can say, wow, I'm so different. Because God has continued to change me and to mold me and to make me more into his image. I never dreamed that I would be standing on a stage one day trying to help you understand the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. I thought that I was just going to be in corporate America doing my thing. But then I got a hold of something where Jesus ripped, gripped my heart in such a way and I knew that my purpose was to be in a place like this and to sharing the best of my ability, the hope that Jesus had uh, has changed my life and that he can change yours. I don't care what you've done wrong in your life. I don't care how heinous it was. I don't care how dark it was. I don't care if it happened when you were a kid or whether you were in college. 
and you just can't shake the vision of the things that you've done wrong and you don't know if you can come to this holy God because you know how dirty you are. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus can forgive all of your sins and wants to forgive all of your sins because he wants to be restored in a relationship with you. But right now, your sin is separating him from you. And he's shouting out to you through a voice piece of myself, saying, come home, come to me. I want to give you a new life. But as long as this sin is in your life, I can't do it. And so you need a forgiver. That's why I sent Jesus. And I sent him in such a way, a perfect man who would live a perfect life and become a perfect eternal sacrifice to take away your sin problem. And so you just need to receive it. Well, how do you receive it? You simply surrender your life to God. That's what God's asking you to do. Surrender your life to me. I'm not trying to, he's not there to ruin your life. He wants to make your life better. You've made a pretty good mess of your life up to this point. Don't you think it's time that we give it over to God and see what he wants to do? He says, surrender your life to me and I'm gonna give you a brand new life in exchange. And once you do, you're one of my children who have the ability to call upon me to be a God of forgiveness. And through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, you simply say, because of what Jesus did on the cross, Father, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he will do just that. He will forgive you. And when he forgives you, you're clean and you're holy and you're now reconciled in your relationship with God. Wow. What it just happened, as I described to you, is that the resurrected king just resurrected you. Do you hear that? Because you're dead to your sins and your trespasses. God's word tells us that. But through Christ, we become alive. Joint heirs with him for all eternity. God, so cool. So cool. Yeah, I took advantage of that because I'm no dummy. What a deal. I know that you're smart enough, too, to make that same decision. So what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment, the band's going to come out. We're going to sing one final song. And for those of you who are wrestling with this decision to put your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to listen to these lyrics or read these lyrics. And all the while, while you're reading the lyrics, you don't have to sing. If you're wrestling with all this stuff, you don't have to sing, but stand up with the rest of the church when we do it so you don't feel weird. But, but stand up and, and then read these lyrics. And then all the while, pray this prayer. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, because I want to see you. Because if you're in it, I want to be a part of it. But if this is just a farce and some game, then I don't really want it. And so, man, ask the Lord to stir you. And if you're feeling something in your heart, I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. At the end of the song that we sing, as everyone else begins to kind of leave and go on to their thing, I'm just going to ask for five minutes of your time. Your family will wait, I promise you. They'll be thrilled to death that you chose to stay around for five more minutes. You're going to find me or Pastor Corey or, or one of our other elders and staff members that are going to be positioned around the four corners of this room. And we want to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be incredible on Easter Sunday, the day we celebrate the resurrected King, if you could also celebrate the fact that he resurrected you. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful for the chance to be able to worship you in this way. I thank you, God, for the, the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, how we desire so much that we would have this relationship with him. Father, we come into this place today, many just to celebrate a resurrection, but others, Lord, to examine the resurrection. 
And it's my sincere prayer, Lord, that anyone that came to examine the resurrection, that they understood it in their head. But now is the time that from the Holy Spirit's perspective, they need to accept you in their heart. Oh, Lord, please let them do that. Not for my glory, not not for any other reason, Lord, but for them to be able to walk out of here fully reconciled and restored with you, their, their holy God, their creator, their savior. Let them leave today. Let everyone leave and we're watching online, know that you're their forgiver and their leader. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 